First Samuel chapter 18. You know, many are the accounts and the events in the Old Testament that serve as outlines or illustrations of the far more powerful for us, incredibly far more powerful events that God was foreshadowing for us to follow. God in the Old Testament again gave a lot of these illustrations or, or clues, if you will, to that mystery that the Apostle Paul often refers to as we talked about in last Sunday night's lesson. Clues to this mystery that God had kept hidden from before time began. But we see these, these clues or these outlines or illustrations that, that in the Old Testament have a certain meaning, but, but we see them as indicating something to come on a far more higher or more powerful level. It has often been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, while the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I've often used the illustration of a coloring book. You buy a coloring book and you've got the outline, you see the shape, you understand what it's supposed to be, not, not the new adult coloring books in every case, but like children's coloring books, like I'm used to with, with my granddaughter. Um, but you have, the, you have the black outline, and you sort of see what the picture's supposed to look like, and, and, and I've aligned that or illustrated that as being the Old Testament. But as you color the picture, and, and you give it shadow, and you give it color, and you give it form, and you flesh out with crayons or whatever you're using to color, it, it comes more to life, and, and that's sort of what the New Testament does to some of these Old Testament outlines or clues of things to come. This is why it says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. It is those things that the Old Testament foreshadows for us that we read about and we find hope and we find comfort in. One way of confirming this would be to read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 and it talks there about the Old Testament worship and how it foreshadowed the New Testament worship. Only the New Testament is on a much more intense, if you will, or, or better level. We have better things. We're going to take a look this morning in the Old Testament at one of those events, one of those accounts, that has some incredible, incredible, awesome, encouraging, eternal implications for those of us who are blessed enough to be in Christ and live under the new covenant. We're going to do that in a sermon that is entitled, Mephibosheth and Me. Mephibosheth and Me. Obviously, for those of you that know the name, you understand probably where we're going, but before we get to it, I want to review a little bit of history that led up to the main part of this account. A little bit of history. As we all know from the scriptures, King Saul was the first king of Israel. Now, King Saul started out as a very humble man. We would see that in 1 Samuel 9, verses 19 through 21. We'd see it in 1 Samuel 10 
particularly verses 20 through 23. But as we also know, after he became king, as time went by, Saul became increasingly prideful, increasingly arrogant, disobedient, bitter, angry, malicious, devious, particularly when it came to his relationship with David, the son of Jesse. It was in 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we continue to paint the history here to get to our sermon this morning, it was in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that we first see David appear on the scene. We then move into 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath, which we all know so well. Very familiar with that. While King Saul and his armies were cringing in their sandals over the Philistine giant Goliath, while he and his armies didn't know what to do about Goliath, here comes, quote unquote from the song, little boy David, David is a youth, kills Goliath. From that point forward, from Goliath's death, we see David, we see David move on to become ever more victorious in war, ever more popular with the people, and ever more hated by King Saul on an almost daily basis. King Saul, who as a result sought to hunt David down and kill him, plotted and schemed to do that on more than one occasion. Now, of course, right after 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we see David defeat Goliath, during the same time, we also see King Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, become the dearest and best of friends with David. Jonathan, who himself would have been the oldest son and therefore next in line for the throne behind his father, King Saul, we see him become the absolute best of friends, most loyal of supporters, even defending David and helping to spare David's life from his own father, King Saul. On more than one occasion, we read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, that is when David had finished speaking to Saul right after Goliath, he'd killed Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, that is David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David, again, King Saul's son Jonathan, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. That meant a lot more than giving him a little bit of armor and clothing. That meant whoever attacked David attacked Jonathan. They were absolutely loyal to one another. As the hostilities between King Saul, Jonathan's dad, and David continued to heat up, we find Jonathan once again saving David's life, David's life. And during that exchange, we see David in return making an agreement with Jonathan that when David came to the throne, he would show similar mercy and loving kindness to Jonathan's 
descendants. Jonathan saved David. David agreed that when he came to the throne, that he would show mercy and loving kindness to Jonathan's descendants. We see this in chapter 20. As we move up 11 chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we see King Saul and his three sons killed in battle, including Jonathan. They're all killed in battle by the Philistines. And as we move on after that defeat to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see David's intense grief and pain at the loss of Jonathan and Saul. Saul, King Saul had sought David's life, and yet David is deeply grieved over King Saul's death, as, as well as Jonathan's, obviously, because King Saul was the anointed one, anointed the king. We see David's intense pain and grief, even at the loss of his enemy here, reflected in the Song of Lamentation that David wrote to their remembrance, a song which praised King Saul as well as his son, David's best and most loyal friend and supporter. We see that song of lamentation where King Saul is praised in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so all of that brings us to the main thrust or character of this morning's sermon upon which I want us to focus and that is Mephibosheth, the surviving son of Jonathan, the surviving grandson of King Saul. Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. As I said, Saul and all of his sons, including Jonathan, have been killed in battle. And it says in 2 Samuel 4, in verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. The little boy was five years old when he found out his daddy and his grandpa had been killed in battle. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. First thing I want us to be most aware of here in 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4, the, the thing I want us to understand is the reason why she would run. When kings in that day took the throne, they would often kill off all of their brothers all of their siblings, anybody that could be a threat to their power later on, they would kill off, even their own siblings. Now certainly, the line of reasoning had to be that where Saul did not like David, that when David came to the throne, when, in a time when kings killed off their own siblings, certainly he would kill off Saul and Jonathan's descendants so that they would not pose a threat to the throne later. And so that's why the nurse would run with the little boy, because she figured his life was in absolute danger when David became king. But the second, and maybe a whole lot less obvious, but far more important for the sake of this sermon point that I want for us to notice and make illustration of, is this. Don't miss this. Mephibosheth's lameness, his being crippled, 
for the rest of his life was not his fault. Don't miss that. The fact that he was dropped, fell when the nurse picked him up to run, however that, that's all it tells us there, but when she, that was not the five-year-old boy's fault that from that point forward he was scarred for life. Don't miss that. One, re, one resource I, I looked at conveyed the following. It said this. 2 Samuel 4 tells us that Mephibosheth was under the care of his nurse while his father Jonathan was in battle. When the word came that Jonathan and Saul were dead, the nurse grabbed Mephibosheth to run but dropped him thus injuring both his feet and crippling him for life. He was only about five when this happened and then had to spend the rest of his life being cared for by someone else and living off of the handouts of a small group of the benevolent few. But it wasn't his fault. It was not his fault that his father had died in battle. It was not his fault that his grandfather had died in battle. It was not his fault that his nurse dropped him. It was not his fault that there was no doctor who could fix the problem. None of that was his fault. Why do I make such a big deal of that? This is why. Because today, there are many people who have been scarred for life by somebody that was supposed to be protecting them. They have been scarred for life, perhaps as a child, and they need to understand that is not their fault. One resource I read put it sort of like this. It is not your fault that you were abandoned, neglected, or molested as a child it is not your fault that you were abused, either verbally or physically. It is not your fault if you had no father or mother. It is not your fault if you had to raise yourself or even raise your parents instead of them raising you. It is not your fault. It is not your fault no one ever gave you guidance or provided you with a good education. It is not your fault that no one inspired you, poured life into you, or built up some confidence in you. These things are not your fault. Yeah, this is a rubber meets the road sermon. Sadly, tragically, sometimes, just like in this story, it is the very ones who are entrusted with or charged with protecting us, who either through their own human frailties, weaknesses, or worse yet, sometimes their own sinful and selfish purposes tend to hurt us the most, and it leaves scars for life. And when that happens, we, just like Mephibosheth, 
often wind up living in Lodabar. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? One resource I read said this was probably nine or ten years later on, so at this point the kid's around 14, 15 years old, if indeed that's correct. But David thinks back and he says, Isn't there anybody left of that household that I can show kindness to? I'm king now. And there was a servant, verse 2, of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he says, At your service. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Isn't there somebody left? And Ziba said to king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So king said, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Lodabar. We may not know a whole lot about Lodabar. It's not mentioned a lot in the Bible. For instance, what Lodabar means. The term itself actually means land of nothing. That's the literal meaning. Land of nothing. It means not having or no pasture. I'm sorry. Literally, it means not having or no pasture. It means land of nothing term we might use today is nowheresville. There's nothing there. And again, if I may borrow loosely from another resource on the subject, it says this, Lodabar was a town of forgotten people, including Mephibosheth. In Lodabar, we would find the lost, the unskilled, the uneducated outcasts from society those whom people would scorn, those that we would pass by and pay no attention, those who would be just another statistic on a government report. As I read that, if you think about Mephibosheth, in those days, those that were lame or paralyzed were considered to be, they'd done something awful. They were almost like lepers, and like lepers lived in colony. Apparently, from, from what the resources I saw, they, they pictured Lodabar as that sort of place, the, the outcasts. Those who nobody wanted. I, I couldn't help but think of this. If you have children, you'll understand this. All I could think of when I, when I, when I read some of this resource material was, remember, remember Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the TV special? Remember the island of misfit toys? <laughs> That's all I could think of. The misfits. The lame, the broken. That resource went on to say, many of the inhabitants of Lodabar were not there because of their own fault. Certainly, Mephibosheth was not in Lodabar because of something he had personally done wrong. And the same is true in our society today, where many people live in a state of isolation and loneliness. Can you be isolated in a crowd? Yeah from the homeless, to the addicted, to those abused as children that are still scarred, to the struggling single mother, to even the haunted and still crippled 
under the weight of some immense personal burden they are carrying Christian. People all around us remain scarred, scared, alone, and forgotten. They live in a state of Lodabar. Lodabar is not just a physical location from that map in that day. They live in that deserted place. Even some of them whom the life crippling weight they are still carrying is not their fault. That resource went on to say, we as sinners, scarred and crippled by the sins of ourselves or others, either live in a constant state of low debar or we know somebody who does. Whether we know it or not, one resource I looked at said, did you ever stop to think that maybe the person, I'll use my own terms, did you ever stop to think that maybe the person that you're sitting beside, around, and back of, in front of, got beaten up before they come to church on Sunday morning? I've never had such a thought until I read that. I suppose in some congregations that's true. We don't always know the burden somebody else is carrying. We don't know what crippled them as a child that wasn't their fault and yet they're still carrying it around. He says, or, or this article said, more than we might think people are messed up on the inside but striving to look like everything is all right on the outside. The one sitting right next to you might even fit that mold. From people abused as children to folks battling the crippling effects of other people's anger, other people's jealousy, other people's adultery, maybe they themselves being deserted by loved ones, or any number of things that causes them not to be able to sleep at night, something that has crippled them from all God intended for them to be, something that keeps them depressed, something that keeps them frustrated, something that keeps them miserable, something that keeps them even angry at times, something that has them living in a psychological prison, their own personal Lodabar, and there seems to be no way of escape. People are afraid to come out of Lodabar by asking for help. They can't talk about it because they are ashamed, embarrassed, and worried that folks might not understand and might talk about them. They are worried they will get put down, talked about, and insulted. Bottom line of this, this selection, fear more than anything else keeps them crippled and living in Lodabar. Enter King David, 2 Samuel 9 and verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, he prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear. Isn't that a beautiful line to hear if you're in here? Do not fear. The king says to you, do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Isn't that awesome? 
David comes with a message of, you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to live like you've been living. You don't have to live in Lodabar anymore. You don't have to live in fear ever again, verse 6. David comes with a message of, I will protect you. I will preserve you. And I will provide for you beyond your wildest dreams, verse 7. And again, remember, in those days it was necessary when a king was overthrown that his entire family be killed off. Mephibosheth is the grandson of the former king, King Saul. He'd been hiding out in Lodabar, or at least in Lodabar, for, for nobody knows really how truly how long, and now he had been discovered. Listen, if you're him and you're brought before King David, the new king who your grandfather was a blood enemy with, what are you thinking? Knowing the society of the culture, knowing what happened there, what are you thinking when David discovers you and his emissaries come to get you out of Lodabar and bring you to Jerusalem? Guess what you're thinking? I'm dead. But David, this is incredible. David says, don't fear. Don't fear. I love Jonathan. And I am going to provide for you and I'm going to give you back all the land that's been taken from you. And from this day forward, you're going to eat at my table in my pack. Really? What an incredible thing that, that must have been. You know what it meant to eat at David's table? That literally, can you imagine? Here's lame Mephibosheth. He's being helped down, down the hallways of, of David's palace by, by servants of David. He's being helped to that, to that hall where the table was. Let's take this in a literal way first. He's being helped to that table, and, and sitting at that table, you see some of David's family. Let's, let's, let's assume literal for a minute, and then we'll go figurative. And you see some of David's family sitting there, and you see some of his mighty men, maybe some of his high military commanders. And here's little Mephibosheth. He gets to be in that company. Imagine what that must have done to him who thought he was going to die. And of course, figuratively, to eat at David's table meant that he was part of the family. Despite the crippling weight you've been carried around, carrying around, despite, despite everything that's happened to you, despite all of that that's not your fault, despite your living conditions and, and your self-imposed exile in Lodabar, despite all of that, I'm adopting you into my family, David says. You're going to eat at my table. If you went after Mephibosheth, you might as well go after any one of King David's sons and daughters because from now on it meant that Mephibosheth was part of the family. And I tried to think of a modern-day illustration that might give us some small idea of this, and this is the best I come up with, so just work with me. Try to imagine yourself for a moment. Stay with me here. Try to imagine yourself for a moment as a young 14, 15, 16-year-old Afghani. Now, we know that in the last few weeks and months, things in Afghanistan, people are, we, we, it's, it's horrific beyond imagination. Let's assume that you are a young Afghani, boy or girl, doesn't matter, and you're literally starving to death. Your mother and father are both dead. You're an orphan, and you are literally starving to death. You'd steal food, but there's no food to steal. You know that you're going to die. And, and you have heard, you have heard that it's all the Americans' fault. The Americans absolutely hate and want to destroy you. This is the propaganda that you've been fed. Imagine yourself in that shoe, those shoes. Work with me for a minute. You know that. You know they just want to kill you. This is good. They think this is good. You, you, you buy into that propaganda that, that is there. And then 
while you have no hope and you're starving to death and you're diseased and, and, and you watch people die around you every day, all of a sudden, one day, emissaries come to your village, American emissaries, and they select you and they bring you back to America. All you've heard is that the Americans hate you and want to kill you. But you're brought back to America to be brought before one of the richest, most influential, and most powerful, most, I'm sorry, richest, most influential, and most well-known performers in the world. What are you thinking? What are you thinking on that plane ride? What are you thinking when you come before one of the richest entertainers in America? Having heard all that vitriol and hatred, and they say to you, from now on, I want you to be part of my family. You will be living here in our house with myself and the rest of the family from now on. Everything you see on this property will be yours to enjoy, just as it is the rest of the families. Everything. Be it day or night. And you will get to eat all that you want of whatever you want whenever you want at this table right alongside me and the rest of our family from now on and forevermore. What would you think if you were that Afghani boy? Wouldn't you think you'd been blessed beyond measure? By the way, just so that you'll know, Couple of stats on this house. It was custom designed and built in 2010. It sits on five and a half acres in Florida. It includes an 11,000 square foot house. It has 13 bedrooms, 14 full bathrooms, six half bathrooms, its own private water park overlooking the Atlantic Ocean and other amenities. The property taxes on this, this is a real place. Property taxes on this place are over $350,000 per year. It sold five years ago in 2017 for just under $40 million. It's a real place. And if you were that Afghani and you were brought to America and you were told all this and shown this and said, oh, by the way, this is your room, what would you say to that? Or if you were, best illustration I could think of, if you were similarly in Mephibosheth's soiled and hopeless sandals in 2 Samuel chapter 9, what would you have said to King David in response to what he's told you about eating at his table continually? What would you say? Because living at his table meant protection. Later on, just a side note for those of you who are taking notes, in 2 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 9, not going to turn there, just tell you real quick, There's a blood price that is demanded for some of the former King Saul's sins where seven of his descendants are delivered up to be killed. David protects Mephibosheth from being one of those seven because eating at his table meant more than just eating the food. It meant protection. Don't want you to miss that. But what would your response be knowing where you were and where you came from as as Mephibosheth No wonder we see his response here in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 9 when he says, Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? David, who am I that you've given me all this stuff? 
Just like maybe that little Afghani, who am I? Knowing who you are. Mephibosheth's reply, if I can paraphrase with this, I'm nothing. I am absolutely nothing. I came from nothing, and I am worthless. That's what I've been being told all my life. I've been told I'm worthless. I'm a cripple. David, why are you doing this? I'll never amount to anything. I can't amount to anything. I'm lame. I can't work. I can't provide for myself. I can't give myself any of this stuff. David, why are you doing this? I'm worthless. I don't even know why I exist. Why do you want anything to do with a dead dog like me? That's pretty much Mephibosheth's response. David, don't you know I'm crippled? But David so desperately wanted to do for Mephibosheth because of David's, because of, listen, because of David's love for Jonathan. And what I want us to understand is no matter where we're coming from or, or what crippling weight we're carrying, you can see where this is going. Because God loves Jesus so much and because God loves us so much, when we belong to Jesus, we're invited to the king's table. Look how much David wanted to help. In, in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul, uh, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Zebra had 15 sons and 20 servants. King David told these Zeba and his 35 people, you're going to work for Mephibosheth, and you're going to work his land, and you're going to provide for him all, all of his life. Mephibosheth's got to be saying, I don't, why? I, I don't deserve this. He, he must not be able to believe his, his good fortune at this point. How, how is this even possible? If it's a dream, don't wake me. And Ziba said to the king, verse 11, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. David says, I'm adopting him. In, in effect, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Time for the application of this entire account and what it foreshadows for us. It ought to be clear by now that on a far, far more powerful level, what God does for us here. Despite our sins, despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, despite our worthlessness and despite our shortcomings, despite our hurts, despite our wounds, despite our scars, despite some of those crippling things that we have suffered and still carry around that were not our fault, despite our broken up, beaten down, 
bottled up and pain-filled, maybe even shameful and embarrassing past, often suffered through no fault of our own, there is a king, King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who invites us into his family, who adopts us despite all of those things, despite the fact that we're not worth it. He adopts us and makes us part of his family, not because we're some great thing and deserve it, but because of what Jesus did for us. This king, far more powerful than King David, with a far bigger, far bigger kingdom and palace than King David, with, with a palace that, that, that makes what I just showed you on that physical, literal house look worse than the dirt in the road. That king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, invites all of us to come, to come out of our own dark, personal, lost, hopeless estate of Lodabar and to live and to eat and to thrive and to enjoy life in his kingdom, in his house, around his table, with his family forevermore. Isn't God awesome? It is only the King of Kings, it is only the Lord of Lords who can truly and fully bind up the brokenhearted. It is only He who can truly heal the hurting. It is only He who can truly lift up the downtrodden. It is only Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that can give hope to the hopeless, that can give life to the lifeless. It is only He who can heal the damaged and bring joy to the discouraged, who can deliver us all from the depths of our own personal Lodabar if we'll only come when he calls. It is only Jesus who is strong enough to take and to bear the crippling, handicapping weight of whatever is holding us down and holding us back from being all that God wants us to be. That's pretty much what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 when he said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's what Jesus told them in his hometown synagogue in Luke 4 verses 18 and 19 when he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The king, not a king, the king, calls us to come this morning with all of our scars, our pain, our burdens, our griefs, our regrets, our despair, our depression, our dysfunction, our disabilities, our inadequacies, our heartaches, anything that is holding us down. And he promises to take and to bear and to set us free from them all while at the same time providing for us, protecting us, and watching over us every day as his own child. Jesus came to set us free from Lodabar, brethren. Healing, forgiving, 
giving us life and giving it eternally, totally irregardless of any past scar, especially those not suffered because of our own fault. In just a couple of minutes, we who were once lost in sin, we who were forever scarred and crippled residents of our own personal spiritual state of Lodabar, are going to have the blessing and the privilege of once again coming to and gathering around the king's table. And we're going to gather around the king's table in the king's house with the king's family. And, and as we do, I, I want you to picture in your mind what Mephibosheth must have felt as he made his way toward the literal table, if you will, where maybe some of King David's family was assembled, maybe King David himself at the head of the table, and I want you to understand that when we meet at this table, God operates above time, right? I want us to understand. Did the first century church spiritually gather around the same table? Not the same literal table, but they gathered and took communion on the first day of the week, right? Did Paul do it? Did Paul take communion on Sunday? Peter? Yeah. What I want us to understand when we gather around this table, picturing Mephibosheth with the king's family and maybe the king sitting there as well being served, I want us to picture that we are eating at the same spiritual table with such great men of God as the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Peter, with such great women of God as their wives who went through so much, with all of the martyrs in the first century who are members of the church. As, as we make our way to this table, I want us to, to understand that we are, we are gathering around the table with the rest of God's family throughout all time, with King Jesus himself sitting at the head of the table. Because we're part of that family now, despite our scars, despite all of the dirt and all the pain and all the we're part of that family now. I want you to remember as we partake of this communion where you came from, what you were when you were crippled and scarred by sin. And I want you to think about what is now yours to live and enjoy for all eternity due to the fact that you're now part of the king's family. And most of all, I want you to remember the cost that the king paid. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that he paid to come himself. He didn't send emissaries. He came himself to come and get you and to rescue you just so that you could eat around that table with his family this morning as we look forward to eternally gathering around his throne. As Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was wounded 
for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement so that we could have peace, for our peace, Isaiah says, was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Shall we all gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper? If you would please peel back the first layer, which opens up the bread. Our Father God to heaven, Father, we're just so thankful for this day that you've given us. Father, a day that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, that we can surround this table Father, we are all sinners. Father, we all fall short. Father, we all have burdens. But Father, you made a way through your Son so that we would have that hope of heaven, so that our burdens could be lifted at Calvary and that our sins could be washed away. And Father, we did not deserve it. We couldn't earn our way. But it's your love, your grace, and your mercy that gave us that opportunity. Father, today as we reflect on the sacrifices that you made so that we would be able to surround that table, and as we take the bread that represents his body, the things that Christ went through, each and every one of us was in his remembrance. And so we do this today in remembrance of him. It's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would go ahead and open up the cup which is the fruit of the vine Father as we continue this remembrance for the fruit of the vine which represents that blood that was shed on the cross And Father, as you followed that path from the scourging, from the, from the nails, far from the crown of thorns, that, flow, that blood flowed to us. Father God, we just want to reflect on that sacrifice. Father, that sacrifice that was not deserving Father, that sacrifice that was 
the sacrifice that was needed. Father, we, we just don't deserve it. But Father, today, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for that sacrifice. That although everything that we've done in our lives, the sins, the pain, the scars, all those things, when we obey you and we follow you, all those things are gone. And Father, it was your, your son's blood that gave us that opportunity. We take this in participation and Father, in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just so that there's no mistaking, one thing I said in the sermon, I don't want anybody to misunderstand this, there was no intention of implying in any way, shape, or form in that lesson that our own sins that we have committed are not our fault, because they are. We must take responsibility for our own sins. However, the point of the lesson was that, that some of those scars that are upon us are things that were not our fault that other people have done to us. There's, there's both of those things that Christ takes care of. How does Christ take care of the sins we've committed? Just as we've personally committed those sins, we must personally respond to him and accept the gift of forgiveness for those sins. We do that when we are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, as King Jesus said. This past Tuesday morning, we had the privilege and the opportunity to watch, to, to be at the courthouse as Adam and Jody adopted the boys. And I remember one of the questions that the judge asked, this is not exact or specific, this is not exact, but she asked something along the lines of, if you adopt these three boys, will they have all the rights and privileges of your naturally born children? And obviously they both said yes. And, and we need to understand that. When we are adopted into the family of God, we become co-heirs with Christ. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 14, 12 or 14, says, and you can look it up, says that we are adopted when we receive this, this spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, we are adopted into the family. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 7, tell us that this adoption process takes place when we are, by faith, baptized into Christ, that we become those children of God. That's where we receive that spirit, according to Acts 2.38. Long and short of it is, if you have never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the king made a way for you to come and be part of his family washed in the blood, to be adopted and have all of the rights and privileges of Jesus, which is mind-blowing, to become a co-heir with Christ. If you've not done that yet, why not? Don't you want to be part of the king's family? Don't you want him to take your burden? Don't you want him to take away the burden of sin and the scars? This morning, if you'd be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you've done that and this lesson has in some way touched you and inspired you to maybe need the prayers of the church to be more committed or stronger or whatever the case may be, we invite you right now to come down front and let your need be known as we stand and as we sing.